Right, so we are doing a brief little series, just two weeks in Revelation 4 and 5. So last Sunday we looked at Revelation chapter 4, and this morning we're going to look at Revelation chapter 5. So before we dive into the text and walk through it, I want you to think with me about a couple of questions. How tied together are the first and second comings of Christ? So just start to think about the connections there. Another question. How important is the second coming of Christ? And maybe we'd all say, oh, totally important, you know, for this reason, this reason, this reason. How important is the second coming of Christ to you like on a daily, weekly regular basis. And maybe there's a little bit of a disconnect between how we say it's important, but maybe it doesn't really factor in much to our daily life. So imagine this for a second. What if you woke up this morning and found out the second coming was not going to happen? That would obviously change a lot, right? Probably more than we even begin to realize as we start thinking about it. So the second coming is absolutely essential to us as believers. And it's actually intended to factor in, in really significant ways, in really practical ways, on a daily, regular basis for us as we persevere in the faith You know, we looked last week at how the churches were called to overcome, to conquer, to persevere in faith through trials and tribulations all the way to the end. And the end, knowing the end, knowing the hope that we have, is so important to actually that daily perseverance. So we considered this some on Friday night. We had this worship night. And if you weren't here for that, you, again, you missed out. It was a really sweet time of worshiping our great God. And the theme of it was citizens of heaven. So we are, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there who will transform our lowly bodies into conformity with the body of his glory. At the end of the night, we considered how it's normal in the Bible. In 1 Peter 1.13, Peter says, Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. All earthly hopes, some of them very good hopes, none of them are certain. None of them are secure. If we put our hopes in other things and other people, anything could blow them up. Death certainly blows them up. But the living hope that we have because of Jesus is unshakable. And so you have, you know, in Hebrews 11, this example of these believers who live like pilgrims, and we also are to live like pilgrims. How are we going to endure through the wilderness of this life and make it safely to the promised land? Well, only if we keep our eyes on the prize. It's the gain that makes the pain worth suffering. So Paul says, I consider, Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory 
that awaits us. Do you see how that's normal Christian thinking? So again, what if there was no promised land? Do you see how it would change the pilgrimage? So we're looking at Revelation, and last week we looked at some context. Let me just uh, review that briefly here so that you can kind of get the feel of what is foundational to hitting chapters 4 and 5. So Jesus, the resurrected Lord, appears to John in chapter 1, and he, he then communicates the letters to John for the churches, the seven churches, chapters 2 and 3, and the call to hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the call to respond to trust and follow Jesus to the end, to conquer, to overcome, to faithfully persevere is repeated to the churches. So you can imagine like some of those messages that Jesus has for the churches are sobering. And we know how life in this world can be hard. And so how are we going to conquer? How are we going to overcome? Well, Lord Jesus says to John, hey, come up here. And he opens the door. There's a door wide open to, to see reality behind the curtain. You know, is, is everything just out of control down here? No. Let me show you reality. Jesus says to John, come up here. You need to see this. And first it's the throne room in Revelation 4. And the throne is at the center. And the glory of God is seen in the fact that he dwells in unapproachable light. He is holy, holy, holy. And so if we're just left with chapter 4, we could be left with how in the world will we ever approach this awesome, holy, transcendent, glorious God? And how are we going to overcome? So we're primed and ready for the good news that we find in chapter 5 now. And so let's look and listen and may the Spirit give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we consider this chapter. So, uh, first point, a sealed scroll. Let's look first at verses 1 and 2. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, the one in chapter 4, this holy, holy, holy creator God of all that is, I saw in his right hand a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So what is this scroll all about? Well, in the ancient world, official documents would be sealed to keep them from being tampered with, altered. And seven seals is, you know, this must be a really serious document the document of highest importance. So this could possibly be something like a will or a covenant deed, but the bottom line is, written on this scroll are the secret purposes and plans of God for the rest of human history. The ultimate destiny of the universe is written on this scroll. So one commentator, easy for me to say, one commentator, Robert Mount, says, a scroll of unparalleled significance, filled to overflowing. It's written on the inside and on the back and sealed with seven seals to ensure the secrecy of its decrees. It contains the full account of what God in his sovereign will has determined as the destiny of the world. 
So the one worthy, the one able to open this scroll is able to both reveal its contents but also execute the plan. Okay, so the issue is not just what does it say, what does it say? The issue is who has the ability to actually carry out the plans of God, to accomplish them. One who is worthy is needed. This is different than just sheer power, raw power. You've got to be worthy for this. So think of little, you know, boy King Arthur, you know, before he became king. And Excalibur, the sword in the stone. He was able to pull that sword out, not because of strength, but because he was worthy. So the, you know, they put it back in and the other knights that were you know, strapping and big, like, oh, I can pull this out if he can pull this out. And he couldn't pull it out because they weren't worthy. They weren't the one. The, I guess you could say, anointed one, as it were. Or if you're a Marvel fan, like Thor with Mjolnir, the hammer. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, I see those nods. Whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. So says Odin, his father. So, who is worthy? Well, let's look at point two, verses three and four, and we find a weeping apostle. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Is there a little bit of an emotional disconnect for you? Why is he crying? What's he, what, what's he weeping about? Anybody? Emotional disconnect? I mean, there was for me. I, this is kind of why I was meditating on this summer. And then I realized what's going on here. And okay, this is really powerful. So we actually need to understand the significance of the moment and feel the weight of it in order to respond with the kind of righteous emotion that John is responding with here. John's response is actually the right one. And had we been there sharing his understanding, we would have wept too. So why would John, think about this, why would John, the apostle, he's like in his mid-90s, well, uh, I don't know, he's old, okay? This is like 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Why in the world is he weeping? Like, he knew what Jesus did on the cross. He, he knew Jesus rose from the dead. What's he weeping about? Well, remember what the scroll represents. The totality of the plans and purposes of God for judgment and deliverance. Setting the world to rights. The point of having someone worthy and able to open the scroll is not merely to find someone worthy to just read the thing, to reveal what's in it, but someone worthy to execute and accomplish those plans. So if there's no one worthy to open the scroll, then the purposes of God will not come to pass. So what would that mean? Let's just make it a little more, bring it a little closer to home. This world, I don't have to convince any of you, I'm sure, is broken and rebellious. There is so much that's wrong in this world. How will it be set right so God's good, redemptive purposes to right every wrong, to set the world to rights, to make all things new, to heal the broken, to wipe away every tear, to wipe away all shame, to bring true and eternal peace, to bring societal renewal and harmony, to order the chaos and fill the emptiness. 
ultimately will never be finally accomplished and fulfilled. I mean, imagine what this means. Think about some people, our brothers and sisters, who are dying in Afghanistan right now because they're Christians, martyrs. In Revelation 6, 9, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Well, if the scroll doesn't get open, no justice for them. No answer to that prayer, ultimately. No ultimate justice for the wicked. No full final healing for the abused. No restoration of honor for the shame. No reunion with departed loved ones. No hope of eternal love and belonging for the lonely. No new glorified bodies. No restoration for the amputee or the Alzheimer sufferer. No reformation for the deformed. No recreation for the disabled. No final safety for the fearful. No final security for the threatened. No happily ever after. Revelation 21 and 22, you'd have to cut them out. Every tear would not be wiped away. The promises of God would fail. If there's no one worthy to open the scroll, then that's where we're at. Totally bleak future, no hope. So do you see why he wept? James Hamilton, commentator, writes this, what would it be like if there was no one worthy? There would be no hope, no meaning, and no significance to what happens in this world. Everything would be a hellish, howling wasteland. The world would be a pagan wilderness full of meaningless suffering and pain where, we, where, might, where might really would make right. There would be no justice, no true righteousness, no vindication, and no mercy. The universe would be nothing but an awful, terrifying, trackless labyrinth in which we would all be lost. Wouldn't you weep? I mean, can you imagine if that was the case? No hope, no better day, no brighter future, no justice, no lasting peace, no ultimate security, no truly satisfying joy, no lasting love. But it doesn't stay silent. One who knows better speaks up and breaks the silence. So look at the third point here, verse 5, a conquering lion. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, remember, Come up here. You've got to see this. Look. See this vision of reality. This is what's really going on. It might seem like everything's out of control, but behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. So the lion of Judah, the king, the king of kings, he has conquered and because he's conquered, he can, he is able, he is worthy to open the scroll. And if he has conquered, then we have hope by his grace that we can conquer. Remember chapter 3, verse 21? So the end of the last letter to the churches, before you head into the throne room, says this, the one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Jesus speaking to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
we, brothers and sisters, can conquer, we can overcome, we can persevere in faith through trial and tribulation because he first conquered for us. So, the conquering in the past enables him, makes him worthy to set all to rights in the future. There is no redemption, no final justice without Jesus, no mercy, no restoration, no all things new. But he has conquered. And so all the promises of God find their yes in Christ, like it says in 2 Corinthians 1.20. Or you could use the words of Jesus in John 16. I've said all these things to you, he's speaking to his disciples, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He's already conquered. And so we can conquer because we are in him and strengthened by his grace all the way home. So the Lion of Judah has conquered. Hallelujah. Satan, the enemy, is only like a lion seeking whom he may devour. He's only like a lion. He is not a lion. He is certainly not the lion. Jesus is the lion of Judah. I love this quote by guy named Matthew Smethurst. Satan is like a lion, 1 Peter 5, 8. Jesus is a lion, the lion of Judah. One is on a leash, the other is on the throne. Amen? Anybody? The lion is on the throne. So all other kings and authorities, no matter how powerful, are nothing compared to the lion of of Judah. I love this story that um, a guy named Dale Raff Davis, he's an Old Testament commentator, he, he tells this story. James VI of Scotland was notoriously rude when attending worship services. This is obviously a while ago in Scotland. On one occasion, he was seated in his gallery with several courtiers while Robert Bruce preached. In his usual form, James began to talk to those around him during the sermon. Bruce paused. The king fell silent. The minister resumed, and so did James. Bruce ceased speaking a second time. Same result. When the king committed his third offense, Bruce turned and addressed James directly. It is said to have been an expression of the wisest of kings. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. The lion of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel, and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. So the lion has conquered and he is worthy to open, to reveal and execute the plans of God. But, we should ask, what kind of victory was it? He conquered, okay. What kind of victory was this? How did he conquer? He just pounce on all his enemies and just overcome them by sheer force? And how does how he conquered shape how we conquer? Is there any connection there? So let's read on verses five or verses six and seven of, of chapter five and look at the slain lamb. We've just looked at the conquering lion. Now let's look at the slain lamb. Verse six. 
And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So just... Again, the scene here, try to enter into it before we answer that question, you know, how did he conquer? Let's just note how shocking this is. And again, James Hamilton says it well. This is breathtaking audacity. This lamb marches right up to the Father, seated on the throne, surrounded by the four living creatures, crying, holy, 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 in full view of the 24 elders, and just takes the scroll. Crucified, dead, buried, raised. Now he assertively takes the reins of history. Jesus takes the scroll that describes the events of the end, whereby all the wrongs will be set right, all injustice is accounted for, all crimes avenged. He takes it from the right hand of the Father, and the Father doesn't resist him. The four living creatures don't object, and the 24 elders do not stand in his way. Jesus is the central figure in the history of humanity. Jesus controls your destiny. He controls the destiny of every individual on the planet. And he's a lamb. The lion is the lamb. So this is echoes of Daniel 7. We won't have time to take a look at that, but look at it later on. And his lamb-like nature reveals how he conquered. His conquering victory was not by way of raw power, like I mentioned. It's by way of humble self-sacrifice. So listen, think about this. This is the universe in which you live. This is ultimate reality behind the curtain. Who's in control? Where we came from? Why we exist? Where we're headed? The ultimate display of the power of God was actually through the weakness of God. Raw power and coercion is the MO of the devil. And all the wicked dictators, rulers, kings who've imitated the devil's ways and means. Our God, the true God, the one and only living God, is different. What is God like? Look at Jesus. What did he say to his disciples? He called them to him in Mark 10. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served as though he needed anything. But he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came humbly. He took on flesh and and became like a servant, a slave, even to the point of death on a cross. Because all we like sheep had gone astray. We've all turned, each one, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the sacrificial, substitutionary sacrifice, substitutionary atonement, laid our iniquity on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. Meekly, humbly, he went to the cross. 
like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The lion, the conquering lion is the lamb. He's the Passover lamb. He's how our sins are forgiven and atoned for. His blood covering our sins so that we can be reconciled with God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So total self-sacrifice is how Jesus conquered. The greatest victory this world has ever known was won by willing sacrifice. The glory of God's power is most ultimately displayed on the cross. Power through weakness. So I'll ask the question again, does that have any bearing on how we conquer? How do we overcome? How are you going to make it to the end? Do you remember back in Mark 8 when Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to suffer and die? And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him and says, you know, that's not going to happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then he said, after saying, this is how I'm going to go. This is my nature, my mission, my purpose. And if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. So it's not by spiritual bravado. That should be an oxymoron, right? or being well-armed and stocked up for the apocalypse. That's not how you're going to overcome and conquer. It's going to be power through weakness. It's why the thorn in the flesh for Paul was ultimately a gift. So yeah, Satan wanted to harass Paul with that, 2 Corinthians 12. But what, what happened was it backfired. God had his purposes for that thorn in the flesh, to make Paul weak so that in his weakness, he would be humbled. And in his humility, he would know how much help he needs, how he needs to depend on the grace of God. And when he's depending on the grace of God in Christ, he's strong in God's strength, not his own limited resources. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. His grace is sufficient. You see? The call was for someone worthy, not someone with enough raw power. And we also will conquer, overcome, persevere by humbly depending on our lion-like, lamb-like Redeemer and by laying our lives down, not trying to save our lives, but denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Jesus all the, all the way to the end. We will conquer by laying our lives down. So those who overcome are actually first overcome by their sin. Have you been overcome by your sin? Like Isaiah and Isaiah 6, woe is me, I am undone. Like I am, woe, condemnation, judgment is what I deserve. And then you hear the good news of the gospel and how good your Savior is, how good Jesus is, the only true and living Savior, and you're overcome by His grace and His love and His mercy and His humble self-sacrifice. 
And we start to embody the Beatitudes, for instance, because that's what it looks like to live in his kingdom and follow him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We recognize how needy we are and we rely on his strength and grace. I mean, just think about how Jesus exhorted the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. How were they to keep going and persevere? Well, repent. (laughs) Recognize how needy you are. Repent. Sinful you are. Repent. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Turn from sin, false teaching. Repent. Come back to your first love. So the fact that Jesus takes the scroll, the future is in his hands. The future is in King Jesus' hands. He is going to set everything to rights, and so we don't have to take matters into our own hands. See, we can humbly depend on him. We can meekly yield vengeance to the Lord who will take care of it. We can forgive those who sin against us. We can bless and pray and do good to our persecutors. Think about how needful this is for our Afghani brothers and sisters. It's how we can yield our vindictive desires for a pound of flesh. The way Jesus conquered both empowers us to conquer and shapes how we do conquer. But let me swing back in the direction of his lion-like nature. This lamb is no pushover. He's meek. But he also said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down my own authority and I'll take it up again. Jesus was in control even as he was led to his slaughter. So this slain lamb in Revelation 5 is standing. Slain lambs don't stand unless they're alive again, resurrected. And it has seven horns. Horn is an image of strength and power. He's perfect in power. Seven's number of completeness and fullness. He's almighty. Seven eyes, perfect in wisdom. He sees and knows all. And the fullness of the Spirit is on him to accomplish all of the plans and purposes of God. So as in, you know, apocalyptic elsewhere, in case you're getting thrown off as you try to picture this, um, Robert Mount says this, here as elsewhere, we're dealing with visions that were meant to stir the imagination, not yield to the drawing board, okay? It's actually characteristic of apocalyptic is, you know, weird visions and moving from one metaphor, mixing metaphors and all of that. But the point is, he is lion-like. He is lamb-like, and the lamb is standing, and the lamb is powerful, and he sees and knows everything. So Jesus, the lion of Judah, the lamb that was slain, perfect in power and wisdom, has taken control of this world's destiny. Isn't that good news? Jesus is in control of your destiny, and my destiny, and everyone's destiny. Like, what better hands to be in today and every day? Aren't you glad that your future is in omnipotent, nail-pierced hands. Maybe that's something we should remember and take into the week. Your future, my future, is in 
omnipotent, nail-pierced hands. So, how should we respond? Any guesses? Kind of like last week. We should sing. We need to join the song. So look now at verse 7 again, and we'll follow it through to the end of the chapter. So this lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Let's just pause here for a second. You know that many of your prayers can't and won't be answered until the end. That doesn't mean they're forgotten. That doesn't mean God isn't listening. Look at how they are brought with care and honor before the one who is worthy and able to answer. So maybe some encouragement to continue to ask and seek and knock, even though we feel like sometimes it's not going any further than the ceiling. Verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why is he worthy? How is he worthy? Because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders and the voice, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, probably something like 10,000 times 10,000. You know what that is? 100 million. And thousands of thousands. So in other words, an innumerable like throng of angels saying with a loud voice, can you imagine what this sounds like? Worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive sevenfold blessing, fullness of praise, power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. They all belong to him. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying. So if you were tracking, chapter 4, there's two hymns to God the Father. Chapter 5, up to this point, there's two hymns to God the Son, Lion and Lamb. And now the last hymn is to the Father and the Son. To him who sits on the throne, Revelation 4, and to the Lamb, Revelation 5, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So the Lamb is worthy of all worship. But stop and think about this new song thing. Why are they singing a new song? What does that mean? Well, it's not the first time that the phrase new song shows up in the Bible. You see it in the Psalms. You see it in Isaiah. Listen to a couple Psalms. Psalm 98.1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Why? For he's done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. 
Or Psalm 40, I've waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. It's an expression of praise to God for victory, for a deliverance. So every time God saves us from something, and obviously he can save us from our sins. Conversion is this. But there's all kinds of deliverances, right, that happen throughout our lives as we persevere, seek to overcome, conquer all the way to the end. And so it's fitting to sing a new song to the Lamb. He is our Redeemer and he delivers us, delivers us in new songs. I mean, this is like a call to the artists in the church, the poets and the singers to continue to write new songs. I love that Jesus strong and kind. So simple, but like it just gives me not only a song, but a prayer. Teaches me, reminds me of his faithfulness to deliver in the past and, and call upon him to deliver again. So, Do you see where this thing started, chapter 5, with weeping? And now because the worthy one has been seen and heard, there's rejoicing, there's praise. So our mourning will be turned to dancing when we see reality and when we trust our worthy Redeemer. You've heard me quote this before. I'm going to do it again. I don't know, maybe we all just need to memorize this one. John Calvin said this, the church is the place where the gospel is preached. Gospel is good news. Good news makes people happy. Happy people sing. But then, two, unhappy people, like me, may sing to cheer themselves up. So we need to be reminded if we're going to persevere, if we're going to overcome and conquer, we oftentimes lose sight of reality. And we need to hear from Jesus. We need to see Jesus again and remember how good and strong and gracious of a Redeemer He is so that our hearts are warmed and our faith is strengthened and we can persevere. Another quote, Ray Ortland. I love this. Because sometimes, you know, I've had people say before, like, sometimes I feel like I just could, you know, stand up and cheer. Okay, do that. It's okay. You guys do it at the Eagles game, right? I mean, if there's something to cheer about. Um, (laughs) Go Eagles, as long as they're not playing the Steelers, okay? But seriously, if we're going to get excited about something, we should be getting excited about the gospel, about what God has done. I love this quote by Ray Orland. It's convicting to me too, so I'm not just like, you know, you guys aren't joyful enough. I'm like, ugh, I need this. He says, as we savor the good news, the mountains of frost and ice within begin to thaw and we learn to enthuse. The gospel of a surprising salvation can only make us laugh, sing, and cheer. Every church should put a notice on its front door. All face-saving moralists take warning. Within these doors, your chilly pride is in danger of melting into exuberant joy. Enter at your own risk. But all sinners depressed with guilt are welcome. Christianity throbs with holy joy for bad people. God made it that way. 
The test of a church's faith is not only the wording in its creed, as important as that is, but also the gladness of its worship. If we aren't going to hell anymore, if we stand to inherit every blessing Almighty God can think of, if nothing can stand in the way of our restored humanness because it's all ours through the merit of Christ, the worthy one, the friend of sinners, if that can't make us smile, what can? It's just so easy to be overwhelmed by our circumstances and our suffering and underwhelmed by God. That's why Revelation 4 and 5 are in the Bible, to flip that thing. How much time do I have left? (laughs) So, a couple additional things to note just for some sweet, encouraging application to give you hope because we need hope if we're going to endure and persevere, right? So anybody despairing of the possibility of unity in the church? There's a lot, of, a lot of stress and pressure on the unity of the church these days. A lot of, like the tensile strength of the church is being pressed to its breaking point. Do we have to divide into like, you know, masking churches and non-masking churches? Into, you know, like, certain political group churches and this, you know, this side of the aisle, that side of the aisle? Do we just need to do that because we can't get along because, you know, Jesus isn't enough? Center of gravity is not big enough? Well, here is our hope. I never saw this before this time of studying Revelation 5. James Hamilton. Often the number four in the Bible stands for the whole world, right? Four winds, four corners of the earth. So the fact that there are four terms here, tribe, language, people, and nation, means that Jesus has ransomed people from everywhere. Okay, I knew that Jesus ransomed people from everywhere. But do you see, like, this is the whole purpose, is bringing all of those people together. The gospel, he says, levels all notion of racial superiority because it declares that all people stand in the same need of the Savior. So if we center on the Lamb... Let's worship the Lamb. Let's follow the Lamb. Revelation 14.4 says, it is these, the redeemed, who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Oh, man, wouldn't that be great if that's... People think of Bethel Baptist Church and they're like, they just follow the Lamb wherever He goes. (laughs) That'd be great. Think about it. Our Savior chose Matthew, the tax collector, sellout, and Simon the zealot, to be his disciples. What? How in the world are they going to get along? That's like opposite ends of, I mean, talk about polarity. He came for Jews and Samaritans. He came for Jews and Greeks. He came for Hutus and Tutsis. He came for Israelis and Arabs. He came for people with political differences and different views on vaccines and masks and on and on and on. Revelation 5, 9 You were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a singular kingdom. And they will reign with you, and they will worship you together because the Lamb is the center. Same thing in Revelation 7-9. So listen, 
Oh, let's pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's the heavenly vision? Everybody on their faces before the Lamb, together, worshiping the same Redeemer. May that kind of worship, may that kind of unity with beautiful diversity be represented on earth as it is in heaven. And obviously the mission theme. It's Gospel Mission Sunday, Missions Emphasis Sunday. So he redeemed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So we need to go to every language, people, tribe, and nation with the gospel so that all those worshipers can come home. So may the Lord bless your ministry in Liberia and bless Colleen and Greg and bless us because we are accountable for our neighbors. So Revelation 5 is a call to join the song of heaven. Richard Bauckham says this, doxologies with their confession that glory belongs eternally to the one who is addressed were a Jewish form of praise to the one God. There could be no clear way of ascribing to Jesus the worship due to God than this. Like, it, this should just blow our minds. This is probably one of the most powerful, clear evidences of the deity of Christ <laughs> is the doxology is ascribed to the Son as well as the Father. So the sovereign hands that hold the future are nail-pierced hands. Is anyone worthy? Yes. The lion who is the lamb, he is worthy. So we're going to sing, Is He Worthy? That song um, Andrew Peterson wrote to close, fitting um, song of worship, and it just captures, I think, the cry of our hearts as well. So if the musicians want to come up, we're going to close with, Is He Worthy? Let's just sing with all our heart and enthuse about our great Redeemer.